Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Today will be the third sermon in our Power of Praise series. And this morning, we have something special we'd like to introduce. Our children here at NC4, we believe, are a real gift from God. And it's important that they take their place in the body of Christ, not just later, but now, not just when they grow up. This is why we had the children's prayer teams, remember, before COVID, and how effective they were. We're going to reinstitute those as soon as we get completely released from this pestilence. And so, uh, but what we're going to be doing uh, heretofore, or at least some Sundays, we want to start having a child or a teen do the scripture reading for the message. This guy's in like... He's in middle school, you know. Your parents need to get dog food stock or something, you know. Anyway, Grayson's going to read for us our text for this morning, which is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. And this happens to be the very scripture that Jesus himself read when he entered the synagogue at Nazareth. So I'm going to ask Grayson to come forward and read. I'm going to ask us all to stand in reverence to the word of God. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow them a crown of beauty, instead of ashes, the oil of joy, instead of mourning and a garment of praise, and instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. So as it has been mentioned uh, in the last two sermons, uh, we believe that God has his finger on us as a congregation for this theme of praise, especially as expressed in the sermon last week, from two chronicles, that we're in a season where God is like poised to fight our battles as we praise him. We talked about two chronicles, 20, where Jehoshaphat and a praise team go out, and God confuses the enemies of Israel as Israel praises him in holy attire. And what was interesting about that, you know, is all they did in that story that we were tackling last week is all they did was they went out and praised him in holy attire, and then God confused the enemies of Judah that had allied themselves against Jehoshaphat and the children of Judah in such a way that they destroyed one another, that they capitulated to one another, and Israel never had to battle as they praised. And I was thinking, like, how does that work in terms of a a New Testament application? And it just occurred to me over the course of the week, because I was querying God about that, And it occurred to me over the course of the week that just like addictions tend to come in clusters, are you there? Most of us who've worked with addictions understand that addictions cluster, but you know it's sin clusters as well, yeah? 
And, you know, it's almost as if you break the power of a key habit, a key toxic attitude or whatever it might be, that all the other things begin to topple in order. It's really interesting how that kind of works. And it's kind of an Old Testament picture of what happens in the New Testament. So I mentioned the holy attire that was worn by King Jehoshaphat's praise team. And today, you can check the whole message out online last week, but today we're going to take a, a closer look at this idea of holy attire, holy clothing, with our focus on the actual garment of praise that's described in Isaiah 61. Uh, so the title for our message is The Beautiful Exchange. This message was written by Delena, and she's preaching it out in Mukunji this morning, and I have the privilege of working through and making it our own here in Bethlehem. One of the facets of that beautiful exchange when God provides a garment of praise against the spirit of despair, the spirit of heaviness, one of the facets is that we get to put something on, that there's an activity that we perform. The word for garment there, uh, we, we tend to think is just this thing that we pick up and we put on our shoulders like a mantle. As a matter of fact, I think the NIV translates it mantle. It's a bad translation for the Hebrew, the word really means wrapping. Even the crown itself was a turban, it was wrapped. There was, they wrapped it, you had to extend effort, adjust it, you had to put it on, put on the garment of praise on your shoulders, wrap it over your shoulders and around yourself. It was a wrap, it was the first wrappers in history here. So throughout history, clothing has not only been used to cover us, but it often reveals something about the person who wears it, even that person's role in society. See, clothing in most cultures is both functional, yeah, it covers us, it warms us, it protects us, but it's also communicative. We wear clothing to communicate something often. This is a generalization, but I believe it's, it's fairly true. I've had the privilege of ministering the gospel in about 30 countries, okay, over the course of my ministry time. I've noticed this. Poor cultures tend to dress up for events especially the church, and rich cultures tend to dress down. Huh? You know, you go to Haiti, you go to West Africa, go to the Caribbean, you go to the sub- Indian subcontinent, you know, people who go to church dress to the nines in poor cultures because it has to do with human dignity. Are you there? They have a, a chance to exhibit the human dignity that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and worshiping him. But Wealthy cultures, on the other hand, tend to go the other way. They dress down. They want to look democratic, and we want to look unpretentious. We don't want to look wealthy, even though most of us are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. You know, uh, we wear our jeans, and we wear our distressed clothing. Distressed clothing is really an interesting phenomenon, all right? You know what distressed clothing is? Like you buy clothes with holes in them, yeah? It's like manufactured poverty. You know, (laughs) I have all this distressed clothing at home, but it wasn't manufactured. (laughs) I have these dockers that are just, they're like shredded, right? And I'll go out with the dockers on, they're shredded back here too. And Trisha said, you're not going to go out in those. I said, this is my distressed clothing. I can do this. (laughs) So this is my, my, my distressed clothing. And there's this thing where in our culture, you know, even the performers themselves use their clothing of uniforms to communicate whether they're in comedy or whether they're in uh, rock bands or whatever else. Clothing communicates something other than 
its function. I love to watch the uniforms of performers. Uh, Lady Antebellum is one of my favorite semi-bluegrass groups out of Nashville. When they perform, they wear street clothing. They wear unpretentious kind of street clothing because, you see, they, they want to identify with the audience. They want to be one with the audience. Are you there? They want to communicate something. Springsteen does that, too. Talking heads, on the other hand, you got the big suits. They got something else to communicate. It makes a, a statement, you see. Lady Gaga, okay, she doesn't want to identify with anyone except herself. Huh? By the way, most pop stars these days, I'm not talking about the ancillary kinds of music, but most pop stars want thorough individuality to recreate themselves and recreate themselves and recreate themselves. So, our attire isn't only functional, our attire makes a statement, and always did. And likewise, in this passage, we have an attire, but this attire is provided by God himself. And the garment of praise is functional because it makes a statement about those who put it on. But we want to know, well, what does the garment of praise look like? And I want to kind of get into that this morning. Now, when we praise God, you know, we put on the wrap. We make the effort. We do something that's volitional. Somebody had a, a prophetic word this morning that said, you don't need a move of the Holy Spirit to gain the joy of the Lord. It's true. Because part of gaining the joy of the Lord is our willingness, our discipline, if you will, to praise him. Are you there? It's that kind of thing. So when we praise God and we do that, he provides protection. He reveals our purpose. He reaffirms our identity in Jesus. But, and we do all those kinds of things. But before we do that, I just want to go to the scripture that we looked at this morning that Grayson so eloquently read. And I want to just give us a context. I want to read one portion of it, just three, three verses, and I want to do a running commentary on it. Now, some of us don't realize this. 100 years before Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon, Isaiah prophesies. I mean, we imagine Isaiah's prophesying to the audiences that it's in Judah that when he begins to prophesy. And that's true, but he's prophesying also into the captivity that he's warning them not to go into. Are you there? And so 100 years before Judah is in captivity in Babylon, Isaiah prophesies to them in captivity, and it becomes a picture, this ensample of God's heart toward people who have been held captive in sin and the possibility of this immense redemption and it's a picture of the new covenant, okay? So, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Now, it's important that Isaiah invokes the sovereign God here because it's a sovereign God who's acting, a free agent, unbound by any obligation to his people, and this is what's called pure love. He doesn't have to do it. He just loves us that much to exercise his sovereignty, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and a release from darkness for the prisoners. And I want to point out that the audience Isaiah is addressing is Israel, and they put themselves into bondage. The nation has victimized itself. And this is why it's the sovereign Lord who needs to intervene. And this is a nation laboring in condemnation. 
So to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. I also want to point out this. It's the day of the vengeance of God. It's not the day of the revenge of God. Vengeance and revenge are two different things, and I'm not going to get into the subtlety of that, but vengeance occurs when God addresses judgment with pure mercy. How cool is that? I say that again. Vengeance occurs when God addresses our captivity with pure, pure mercy. All right. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and here we go, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, I think it says in the English Standard Version. I like the word heaviness because it suggests more depression it suggests more oppression. Despair is a, a little bit too, too strong as I look at the Hebrew there. So Isaiah 61 is sometimes referred to as Messiah's Jubilee. Well, what does that mean? Well, Isaiah takes the language of Leviticus 25, which describes the year of Jubilee, and he uses it to prophesy about the anointed one, about Jesus, about the Messiah, and what Jesus would accomplish now, the year of Jubilee was a holy year unto God, and it was, took place every 50 years. And one of the aspects of the year of Jubilee was freedom, right? And for those who had sold themselves into a life of servitude in order to repay debts, okay, they suddenly experienced freedom. Well, why would you do that? Well, under the old covenant, if you ended up in debt and you couldn't pay the debt, one of the ways that you could address the debt was that you sold yourself and became an indentured servant. So essentially, if I was in debt to you and I couldn't pay you, I had the right to say to you, look, take me, I'll become your, in effect, slave until the debt's paid off. And so the year of Jubilee addressed, if you will, the notion that that could move into a real injustice, yeah? And so the year of Jubilee did that. After the sounding of the trumpet on the Day of Atonement in the year of Jubilee, there was this proclamation of freedom across Israel. And they were off the hook, you see? And so this is a picture of what Jesus does for us in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we are off the hook. Are you there? Listen, sin, watch this, is a process where we, like Judah, sell ourselves into servitude. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, sin changes our perception of ourselves, right? Our identities change. Sin changes our appetites. In sin, we find ourselves in bondage to the sin itself. And in the end, sin is just so, 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 so much work. Have you noticed that? Huh? And so I want to fast forward then to Luke 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. Jesus catches the full attention of everybody as he walks into the synagogue, and he reads this very scripture that we're talking about. And then every eye is glued upon him, and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, and then he says, this day in your hearing, it's accomplished. What's really interesting about that is when Jesus walks into this synagogue, he didn't choose Isaiah 61, the scroll was handed to him, and his job was just to read it. As he read it, it becomes prophetically alive. Are you there? 
and the day of the Lord's favor, the jubilee, the freedom is being expressed. I just want to pause and point out that Jesus' proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor is not a literal 12 months. It's a season. It's a season that began at the crucifixion, and it's a season that extends to the second coming of Jesus Christ for every one of us. How cool is that? And so, more than that, there are moments in history when God even goes beyond that and bestows an unusual amount of favor. And we see it in Jesus' ministry with the miracles and the signs and the wonders that take place as the gospels proclaimed. So in a season of favor, God commands his blessing in such a way that produces joy, awe, wonder, the essence of praise. And we recognize that we're in a season of unusual favor as we hear the testimonies like Angie's and Judy's this morning. We're in a time where God is increasing favor as a congregation. Are you there? Are you willing to talk about it? I mean, seriously, extracting testimonies from people is like pulling teeth. And I always wonder why. Jesus said, uh, you you know, you will know the tooth and the tooth will set you free. (laughs) The deal is this. It's a time for us to brag on God as we come into these services over the next couple weeks. It's a time for us to glorify him. All right, let's get back to our story here. So after Jesus reads from the scroll, he rolls it up and sits down and they want to kill him. (laughs) I was at the place in Nazareth where they tried to throw him off the cliff and miraculously he disappears and comes out someplace else. But it's a pretty steep cliff, you know. It's not far from the synagogue itself. All right. But Jesus makes it very clear in his hometown and to us, he's the one. He's the one. He's the one that Isaiah wrote about 600 years before. I mean, all of us want prophecies to come to pass next month. Yeah. 600 years. Isaiah prophesied 600 years previous to the time that Jesus read this in the synagogue at Nazareth. That's twice the number of years of the existence of the United States of America. Huh? That's a lot of time, okay? And so he is the anointed one. He proclaims the good news where he heals broken hearts. He opens blind eyes and frees those who are in bondage to sin or in bondage to the enemy, in bondage to the disease, in bondage to bad attitudes, all the toxic things that keep us captive. So freedom in Christ, accepting his sacrifice that paid my debt and set me free from the bondage of sin. That's what it is. Not to do whatever I want, but to do, finally, what I'm destined to do in Jesus. Are you there? The year of Jubilee finds its complete fulfillment in Jesus, who offered up his own body as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. And for that reason, the year of Jubilee was good news, because we can say, I'm free. But you know what? It's good news for us as well, because we owed a debt. Everyone in here who's accepted Jesus as their God and their Lord and their Savior owed a debt that they couldn't pay. No money could save our souls. No amount of work could save our souls. The good news is that Jesus paid it in full. Tim Keller said, the gospel is such good news because of what God has done to reach us. It's not advice about what we need to do to reach God. 
So here's the problem. This is something I recognize as a pastor. We underestimate the power of the reach of the cross into every one of our day-to-day lives. Can I just like say that again? We underestimate the power of the reach into our everyday lives, the power of the cross of Jesus. Jesus paid far too great a price for us to continue living with anything that's holding us in bondage or disrupting the flow of his love to us and through us. And so last week I said, look, when we looked at that passage about Jehoshaphat, I said, look, what toxic enemies have allied themselves against us where God is just saying, you know, it's time to deal with that. And when God says it's time to deal with that, one of the things that he provides in the beautiful exchange is the garment of praise. Praise actually does something. Praise is actually warfare. Delana is preaching at Makanji this morning, but her testimony, which I've heard a number of times, is so powerful because for a lot of her life, despite the fact that she's vivacious and charming and all kinds of wonderful stuff, a godly woman and all that kind of stuff. For most of her life, she struggled with suicidal thoughts and an eating disorder. Eating disorders are very difficult. There's a strong spiritual component to eating disorders, I believe. And, you know, one day she sensed in God that this needed to stop. So she entered into a disciplined, consistent, intentional season of praising the living God. Something Trish and I are doing right now, like in our house. Every morning we're sitting there a cappella, praising the Lord, singing and feeling stupid for the first two minutes, and then suddenly the Holy Ghost shows up. Are you there? And so she, she entered into this thing, and she said, suddenly one day the power of God fell upon her so strongly that she was completely healed. And she's free for 10 years. This is her testimony this morning. Free for 10 years from any dysfunction of an eating disorder and free from any suicidal thoughts. That's freedom. That means you can begin to move in what God's called you to. You know? Yeah, we can, give, we can give God a hand for her and for that. In biblical times, you see, it's beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. All this is funeral language, yeah? See, in biblical times, when someone was mourning or expressing some kind of deep uh, distress, they put on a black goat hair garment. And, you know, it was pretty ugly, and it made you feel terrible. And essentially what it was saying is this, this is how I feel inside. Well, I see Christians walking around all the time, and they're not wearing the goat hair, but it looks like they are. Are you there? Eeyore Christians. Now, oh, look. We go through stuff, and I get that. I mean, there's sanctification, and I get that. But there comes a time when the goodness of God needs to be declared in our hearts and in our lives. There needs to be an intentionality about it, and it's freeing. There's this powerful scene here in Isaiah 61, 3, and it reveals the compassion and the mercy of God that just gets dumped on us, and we can capitalize on when the effect of praise begins to work in our lives. Now, let me say it this way. There is a tactic of our enemy, the devil, that he capitalizes upon in order to keep us from the full effect of what Jesus 
won for us in his death on the cross. And it's called condemnation. Are you with me on this? Paul talks about it a lot in Romans, all right? It works something like this. The enemy says to us, yes, you repented of your sin, and it's forgiven. But look around you. Look within you. Look within yourself at the consequences of what you've done. And here's your problem. You've not only sinned, but you're the kind of person who does that. That's your identity. And it's who you are. And I want to tell you this morning, if that's what's rumbling around in your spirit, at some level, over something that you've done in your life that you've confessed and received forgiveness for, it's a lie. Hear me, it's a lie. Condemnation is a lie that tells you that even though you're forgiven, you remain under judgment. Huh? And that's a lie. So I have to be careful how I, you know, lay this out because I understand that there's sanctification and, there, and that we have to work through things and, and there, there's process in Christianity. And I get that. But that's not the whole story. So there was a, a circle of people about a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago. And, and in the circle, pastor was leading the circle and, and they're sitting down and, and he starts talking about, how are you broken? What's your brokenness? And I get that. I understand that I've done that kind of stuff myself. And this kid's in the circle. And he's just gotten like dramatically, vibrantly, sovereignly saved. All right? And he's, you know, he's sitting there and he's smiling and he can barely contain himself and he's in his seat. They get to him and he says, I'm not broken. <laughs> and like I could see, like the rest of the people in the group are looking at him like the congregation looked at Jesus in Nazareth that day. <laughs> I wanted to get him out of there before they killed him. Anyway, the deal was he was so excited about the freedom that he received in accepting Jesus as his Lord and Savior that his life is not ruined. He knew he was off the hook, right? Okay, now, okay, now maybe it's a year or two later and the devil's had a lot of time to tell him he's back on the hook. But the point is, is that he knew, he knew he was a new creation person and that that thing had been captured in him. And I remembered when I realized how forgiven I was for the first time, I reached back into my memory and thought, I remember when I felt that way, you know? And I thought, where does it go? And I understand about deliverance and counseling and all those other kinds of other things, but we gotta have those moments where we realize who we are in Christ, a new creation, off the hook, and in the purposes of God, into our destinies, until he comes again. The freedom is 24-7, are you there? It's that kind of thing. And I was jealous of this kid, you know? And it's like, whoa. Man, he doesn't know about sanctification. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. I'm thinking, let him ride that crest. Are you there? As a church, I want us to ride again. All right? I, I really do. I, I believe that's what God's speaking to us right now. Okay? Hallelujah. Jack Hayford calls this thing where, where the enemy just whispers, and you're the kind of person who does that. You know, you, yeah, you're forgiven, but you're still under judgment. You know, that kind of thing. Jack Hayford calls that the whispered proposition of darkness. Wow. 
A garment of praise is the exchange that God uses to eradicate the whisper of darkness. Huh? All right. Uh, whether it's deep repentance for our own sin or mourning over loss, this passage shows us how Jesus really pays attention to our thoughts. Jesus right now is paying attention to our emotions. He's paying attention to my whole being. He places a crown of beauty, which is really a wrapping, a turban on my head. He pours oil of joy over me, and then he wraps me in a garment of praise, right? And there's an intentionality that I need to exercise consequent to that. The clothing God provides always speaks of how our lives are meant to reveal the nature of God himself. That's the communicative function of clothing. The garment of praise is functional in that it protects me by refocusing me on God rather than myself and on my circumstances and how bad things are. But it's communicative in that we identify with God and consequent to that, we reflect his holiness. I just appreciated Arnold's testimony two or three weeks ago when he said, you know, he, he and his department lost, his, lost their jobs. And like, nothing's coming up, nothing's happening. And where's God, and how could this be? And I, I have more degrees than, you know, than faculty at Harvard and all that kind of stuff, and I'm sitting here. And then when the job came through at the last minute, all the people in his department came to him and said, how did you maintain your joy? You know, I don't know what words they used, but it was a definite indication that the glory of God was attendant upon him. Are you there? When I was working in another life at a bank, part of my, my job was to reconcile the bank. We had, this, we had a computer about the size of this room that had less memory than my cell phone. Seriously, it was the worst job I ever had. It was terrible. I was under a boss who hated me. I mean, hated me. And I think I'm lovable. He just made life miserable for me. Anyway, I don't want to get into, onto that. But in this one day, like everything was going wrong and I knew I was going to have to do a double shift and I was like, Pfft. remember the old tape machines and the computers where you had the two tapes and all of a sudden if that, if that lead on the tape went off the tape, you were messed up, right? So I'm, I'm attaching the tape. The lead goes off the tape and it, was, and it made it sound like like that. And I'm thinking, oh no. And I said, ah, oh, shoot. Only I didn't say shoot. And so this guy who was working, he worked for me, with me for over a year. He came up to me and said, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> now, really, you know, I mean, there was profanity all over the department, but he said, I can't believe you said that. I said, well, why? He said, because I've been watching you for the last year and a half, and I've never heard anything like that, or even disappointing, come out of your mouth, you know? He said, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. And I just said, well, that's God. And sometimes, sometimes, I don't live up to who my God is. Are you there? But that was unconscious. See, when our lives take on that glory, it's the glory of God, right? When our lives take on that glory, it means something that people see that we don't realize, yeah? Sometimes it opens the opportunity for the communication of the gospel. But more than that, it gives people hope that there is a God who does these kinds of things. Now, praise realigns our focus on the one who is fighting this battle for us and helps us gain the proper perspective in our circumstances. 
By the way, this is a God perspective, but it becomes a self perspective. Huh? We don't feel terrible about ourselves. Even when we're fat and too old to disco dance at weddings, we still feel pretty good about ourselves. Are you there? See, when you get to be my age, I had a birthday this week, there are just certain things you can't do. You can't wear distressed clothing, right? You know, because most of it doesn't fit, all right? You can't disco dance at weddings, and you always have to use the senior tees on the golf course. So just, <laughs> but you still feel good about yourself because you're in Christ, all right? Here's what I want to say. When you're thinking about toxic enemies that need to go, all right? And we talked about that last week. I believe this is what the Spirit of God's saying this morning. He's called the finger of God in the Psalms. Let the Holy Spirit take his finger and just put his finger on your heart for a second. And the thing I want to ask you is not, there's lots of stuff going on maybe in your life, okay? But what is the point where you feel the most trapped? What is that point where I feel as if I got no wiggle room anymore? If anything rises to the occasion of feeling trapped more than anything else, it's that issue that God has his hand on today. And I want, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, to declare the season of the Lord's favor upon us. Whatever that is, I want to declare, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth this morning, the year of the Lord's favor upon us. What is it? What is it? God's going to deal with it because we're going to praise him. We're going to praise him in the streets. We're going to praise him in our houses. We're going to praise him in the car. We're going to praise him whether we feel like praising him or not because it's not about us. It's about who he is and the reality of a living God who died on our behalf. Amen? Pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, we thank you for the gift of your shed blood and broken body, for the power of your resurrection, that we might know you and the power of that resurrection as a congregation. As we come out of this thing, as we don these masks, as we just get rid of them. Lord, we ask that you would fly angels into our lives. And we release angels in the name of Jesus to minister to us. Lord, we believe that you've got a finger focused on this one area that's going to cause the other enemies to capitulate. And we say, and we're going to move into a season to praise you like we've never praised you before. Because you spoke eight, <sighs> 2,600 years ago, you spoke and said, I'll give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and this wrapping of praise, wrapping of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Make us trees of righteousness. Anew, this spring, make us the planting of the Lord. 
all that you might be glorified. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, if you're listening online, if you're on, on live stream, or maybe you're here, and, and you've never settled the issue that Jesus is your God, your Lord and your Savior, you, you, this is your day. Because you can learn what this is about. You can learn what it feels like to be off the hook. I'm going to ask you, maybe you prayed a prayer like this before and you feel like it never took. Or maybe, um, maybe you never prayed a prayer like this, but we're going to pray together. The congregation is going to repeat after me to remind us all what, what, what Jesus has done for us. But I'd like you to join me and pray this prayer. And I believe you'll feel something like faith welling up consequent to praying it. So a few words that can change life. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Free me, Lord. Forgive me. And I turn from anything that I know is wrong. I thank you that you died on your cross for me. Would I be forgiven? Wow, but I'd be off the hook. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I just receive you, Lord, right now. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.